Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani. This is American Metamorphosis. It's impossible to see it under a normal microscope. But if you imagine a single grain of salt, the novel coronavirus is 600 times smaller than that. The reason it's impossible to see the virus under a normal microscope is because our eyes can only see light until about 400 nanometers. After that, we require a special electron microscope, one that removes the electron from an atom, speeds it up, and makes it behave like a wave we can see. That microscope brings the dangers of the virus into full view. But even when we can see it, it continues to blindside us, adding to the pain we've already collectively experienced, the loss of life, the loss of economic stability, and the erosion of trust in the systems that are supposed to keep us safe. So how do we begin to understand something we are only just beginning to see? How do we future-proof for a circumstance we didn't predict, a solution we don't yet comprehend? It might mean throwing out the playbook. It might mean looking at precedent. But our eyes can only see light until about 400 nanometers. To really look at this crisis, or any crisis, to examine it, we need a new microscope, a new way to see. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis, a new limited series podcast produced in partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the Atlantic's branded content studio, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders, helping them tackle their most important challenges. We're talking about the very foundation of democracy, the peaceful transition of presidential power. Each week, we look at how the obstacles and opportunities faced by new administrations resonate beyond the White House by bringing you stories on everything from boardrooms to blizzards to blockbusters. Today, we're exploring what happens when leaders face an unprecedented crisis and the unique perspectives and strategies needed to move us from what feels like a dangerous impasse to a place where progress seems possible. And for a story about chaos and pandemonium, there's perhaps no better place to start than a movie set. One that people always use is, you know, oh, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, which is particularly true of, you know, it's, it's the line we always used to use on the Star Wars movies. Like, this isn't Kansas. It's like we're off, you know, you know in a galaxy far, far away. It's fair to say that producer Jim Bloom is a pretty big deal. Well, 
I have worked with uh, George Lucas, Francis Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Hal Ashby, Phil Kaufman, George Miller of Mad Max fame, Volker Schlondorf, Jean-Jacques Anneau, Matthew Robbins, Hal Barwood, Sam Peckinpah. I'm forgetting people. It's embarrassing. He spent his life in film. I'm a um, movie producer and a studio executive and a visual effects executive, all of those things. And I've been doing it for 49 years. And he was an associate producer on the blockbuster classic Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. Star Wars came out in 77. I started an empire in January of 78. The movie didn't come out until May of 1980. We had 27 months to get the picture made. But we not only had to do that, we were doing things that had never been done before in movies. We were creating this battle, this great battle scenes of the, you know, the rebel against the empire forces and the empire were in these great snow walkers that were clumping across the snow and, you know, trying to destroy the rebel base. And it wasn't just the scale or unprecedented nature of the film that made the project a challenge. The problem that we had on Empire was, as is is often the joke with movies, is that, oh, the weather's never been like this until you showed up. While shooting some of the film's most pivotal scenes on site in Finsa, Norway, Jim and his crew faced one of the worst snowstorms in living memory. When you're on location, and particularly a location like this, there are life and death situations. You, you can't take 40 people up a glacier knowing that the weather could change and because people can die if you get caught up there. We couldn't go anywhere and we ran out of stuff to shoot. Did it feel like a crisis or did it feel like it was a moment of opportunity? One of the keys to producing is never to feel in crisis because as crisis like water tends to flow downhill. You know, the the best way to move forward in any kind of situation is to be clear and calm-headed and to sort of say, okay, what do we do to take care of this? What is the, what's the problem and how do we solve it and what's the best way? That same question is one that leaders ask themselves during our nation's lowest moments. Trust was utterly broken. The faith in markets, the faith in banks, the faith in jobs was utterly broken. That... You could work hard and still lose your job and it had nothing to do with you. That's Lewis Hyman. And while that scenario sounds an awful lot like our present one, he's not talking about the pandemic. Instead, he's referring to another American crisis of epic proportions, the Great Depression. You know, in moments like the early 1930s, right, where you have crashing markets and, you know, desperate people and ecological catastrophe. This is also the moment of the the Dust Bowl, don't forget, right? We needed to act. We needed to act decisively and we needed to try new things. The way it was, was not working. Lewis is an economic historian at Cornell. I've been a historian. Do you start at the beginning of grad school or I don't know for this kind of thing? I've been working at Cornell for about 10 years. You're the historian, so you choose the point in time. Since the dawn of time, I've been a historian. Yeah. Since the apparent dawn of time, Lewis has looked at how President Franklin Delano Roosevelt remade the crisis years of the early 1930s into a moment of unparalleled innovation and literally created light out of darkness. Electricity, 
About time we got around here. So one of the things you need to realize is that only about 10% of rural America had electricity at the beginning of the 1930s. And it was seen as impossible to electrify the countryside, right? Sort of very similar to the debates we have now about broadband access uh, and very similar to the realities of how limited access to broadband is constraining rural America. So you're in your automobile, and as you drive out of town, suddenly it's dark. And it's dark, and it's dark, and it's dark. And there's no light but your headlight. And you drive all the way home, and you get there, and it's lit by a kerosene lamp. And so all the kinds of things that define urban America in the 1920s, you know, radio and electrical machinery and, um, you know, light bulbs, uh, telephones, none of this existed in rural America. And so it's a world of silence. It's a world of darkness. And it's a place where people had gone into deep debts in order to own their own farms and then been promised, you know, a world of growth. And then that had gone away. This was the world of darkness and depression FDR inherited when he came to office in 1932. And while FDR is often remembered by both the left and the right for his big government spending programs, what's often forgotten in tackling these crises was his ability to bring totally new and diverse ideas to the table, as well as new and diverse voices. As part of the New Deal, Lewis says that FDR's administration used a unique blend of government leadership and private enterprise to literally turn the lights on in rural America. That was in part thanks to FDR's pick to lead the Rural Electrification Administration, or REA, a guy named Morris Cook. Here's historian Lewis Hyman. He was an engineer. He had run public utility companies in Philadelphia. I think at the time it was about $1,400 a mile to string a mile of cable. And he looked at this and he thought, you know, we can probably do this cheaper. Cook also looked beyond technological innovation to solve the problem of how to modernize sections of the country in darkness. Morris Cook relied on an old rural structure called the cooperative to organize this kind of production. Now, we think of cooperatives today as mostly about hippie grocery stores, but cooperatives are an essential part of agricultural organization. Co-ops were businesses that were owned and run by their members. And in this case, rural people banded together and used government loans to form their own electric companies. And these co-ops were very, very successful. Um, but they were successful not just because of the rural people and the, the rural know-how, but also the tactical know-how um, from Washington. They loaned out a little over $4 billion in nominal dollars, so dollars at the time, but they foreclosed only 44000 So these loans made back with a profit, in other words, the Rural Electrification Administration managed to find a middle way between big corporations and big government through these rural cooperatives. And according to Lewis, it worked. Just 15 years after the formation of the REA, 90% of rural America was on the grid. 
what should people really be taking away then from the New Deal and how the government worked with private enterprise? When most people hear the New Deal, they think of like tax and spend liberalism. They think of left-wing policy. Is that an accurate rendering of what the New Deal actually was? Part of what makes the New Deal interesting is its very inconsistency. So some parts of it are just the government writing checks or organizing production to build stadiums and parks and other lovely things that we still enjoy today. But there's another New Deal, an other New Deal that in some ways is more important because whereas those tax and spend policies built a few houses, the other New Deal built suburbia, um, actually electrified the countryside, created the aerospace industry. So basically, there's two ways of seeing the Great Depression. One is a story of the end of capitalism, that markets have failed, we need to throw out the whole system. And the other, which is more complicated and less prone to you know multiple choices on a high school history test, is a story of how people use the mechanisms of capitalism to remake the system itself, to not just prime the pump, but actually rebuild the engine. We can't forget that this experimentation was happening at a really precarious time in so many people's lives, right? You know, people were literally on the breadline. People were dying. How do you weigh the risk of experimentation when lives are on the line? Well, this is why we don't have one experiment. You have many, many, many experiments. And you bring together smart people, innovative people, and you try lots of things. So I'm sure right now, Biden is weighing whether to go with the tried and true or the crazy and off the wall. And the answer is he should do both. You know, whether he he should be listening to Silicon Valley and to the sort of tech people in Austin and the people in Alabama and the people in New York and people who are opposed to monopolies, people who are for monopolies, people who represent local cooperatives and people who represent, you know, the biggest unions in America. This is exactly what happened and made the New Deal so successful. I'm an eternal optimist, so always looking for for the silver linings and you know, this is this is the biggest crisis of my lifetime. Emily Serizin is Managing Director and Partner with Boston Consulting Group. Her focus is on vaccines and global public health. And she's worked with the likes of the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, on a myriad of vaccine-related issues. So I'm guessing you've been pretty busy this past year. I have indeed. Can you just give us a sense of how unprecedented this year has been? It's the word of 2020. It's unfortunately probably the word of 2021 as well. So when you think about the scale of the problem that we're tackling, the speed at which we're trying to move to tackle it, and then the intense public scrutiny that all this work has to happen under, it's certainly nothing I've ever experienced in in my lifetime. Which is saying something. 
Emily has watched and supported vaccine development and distribution for public health crises before for H1N1, Ebola and polio. There's really been you know, a collective desire to really rise to the challenge, but there's no playbook with which to do that. You can learn bits and pieces from, you know, what did we do in Ebola? What did we do in H1N1? But there's no blueprint. And as you see things change, the response has to adapt. But in order to move fast, an incoming administration still requires a key ingredient, time. And with the truncated transition process, time has been in short supply. The challenge is knowing when to act decisively and when to allow room for correction, when to take the lead and when to let other stakeholders step up. To take the vaccine rollout example, again, you know, I think there's a lot of questions and conversation back to this federal versus state, right? Would it be better if we had a more centralized federal response versus delegating so much to the states who are overworked and under-resourced. Um, that's not a straightforward set of questions. So, you know, taking the time to really do the listening tour, understand what's working, what's not, understand how that varies according to the context of different states, and then putting in place, you know, a set of adjustments that are, you know, they may be bold, or they may be more like micro course correction. But in course correction, according to Emily, a leader can sometimes get overzealous. You know, one of the things the Trump administration did was partner, particularly on vaccines, with the private sector. How important is it for President Biden and his administration to continue to do so? Very important. I mean, this is a place where actually there was precedent, right? So maybe we can break break our use of the word unprecedented for a second. Uh, Please, Emily, let's. <laughs> the, the vaccine and immunization community is one that really had a longstanding history of this public-private partnership. So when it comes to, you know, the manufacture of vaccines, and like how do you make 10 billion vaccines and deliver them all over the world in one year, that expertise lives inside pharmaceutical companies. Um, and they are the ones who, you know, have the right capabilities, incentives to be able to, um, you know, build and maintain that expertise over time. You know, on the flip side, pharmaceutical companies are private companies with fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders. And so they can't take some risks um, that are required in a pandemic context, like building manufacturing facilities to produce billions of doses before they know if they have a product that works. Right. So that's where the public sector um, you know, has been immensely valuable. And the U.S. government has really led the way in this pandemic of you know, subsidizing, right, the um, the at-risk establishment of this large-scale manufacturing capacity. Uh, so there is a real, um, you know, unique marriage of capabilities and resources that has happened previously in vaccines, absolutely came together in this pandemic and needs to be sustained in the future. It can be hard to see the forest for the trees when a period of crisis coincides with a time of transition. But we've got to think ahead, and that means looking at what's worked well during this crisis to prepare for the next one. 
I think that the challenge with a pandemic, particularly one of this magnitude, it can be hard, I think, sometimes to try and find the positives. Do you think that there is another piece of this, which is perhaps the speed of innovation that we shouldn't be overlooking? Absolutely. I mean, the innovation that's happened over the past year is nothing short of extraordinary. You know, there's just an, a whole agenda that is incredibly exciting, quite frankly, to say, how do we take what we've done in COVID and apply it, you know, to other public health priorities? You know, if we can get a vaccine in 12 months for COVID, what about a vaccine for HIV or malaria or, you know, taking mRNA technology and thinking through all the other applications it has in infectious disease? There's a lot of dialogue starting and it will continue around, you know, how do we build back better? How do we avoid this situation in the future. And there's a part of me that just doesn't feel ready for that conversation, quite frankly, because we are so very much in the acute phase of this pandemic. Um, But the reality is actually, it is really important to start that conversation now when the world is so focused on this. And so there is a bit of a strike while the iron is hot, uh, kind of need to have to really be starting that pandemic preparedness dialogue now. As historian Lewis Hyman points out, an appetite for innovation and for trial and error was critical for the success of the New Deal. When we do look back on the New Deal, certainly the predominant narrative is that it's one of the biggest success stories of the 20th century. But there were failures What were some of those failures? Why do you think that we discount them today or maybe we look at the New Deal through perhaps rose-tinted glasses today? We don't want to just look back at the New Deal and say everything was great. And it was was a failure in terms of its actual programs in lots of ways. It was a failure in terms of its racism, in terms of its sexism, in terms of its nativism in the way that through many of its programs excluded African-Americans, excluded women, took deliberate aims to not protect workers um, who are not white men. So I think that as historians, we need to be aware of where things worked and where they didn't work and not just toss everything out. In addressing today's crises, there's an opportunity to learn from the New Deal's failures and make sure no one is left behind. And for Emily, leaving nobody behind means bringing everyone to the table. This is not just the responsibility of the Biden administration. It's really a whole of society response that is required. Um, And so thinking through, you know, what do we need to do at the federal government level, state, local, private companies, civil society, individuals, right? We all really have a role to play here. Our eyes can only see light until about 400 nanometers. We might isolate the problem, the virus, the darkness, the snowstorm. We may know it's happening, but that doesn't mean that we can clearly anticipate what might happen next. Often it takes some experimentation, some taking apart and putting back together, some testing the water, and of course, weathering the storm. Here's producer Jim Bloom again. 
you're painting this picture of what it was like on location in Norway. And it sounds like it was a crazy situation. You know, like you're, you're talking about the stakes. I mean, life and death. You know, when you're actually shooting, you, you run into problems of needing things, but you also run into the greatest issue of all, which is weather. And when we were on Empire, it was, you know, five degrees Fahrenheit. It was freezing out there. So instead of focusing on the scenes that the crew had meant to shoot, Jim improvised. And I said, well, Harrison's in London, let's get him out here. So he flew actor Harrison Ford from London to their snowy stalled shoot in Norway. I said, let's get Harrison out here. And then some of the stuff that we were planning to do on the stages, there was a lake just beyond the hotel. And who knows where we are? It's gray, it's snowing, you can't see more than 15 feet. We'll just shoot it, and we did. It, it wasn't necessarily the intent, but the scene looks better. And it works much better because when you see these two guys out in the cold, well, they were out in the cold. It brings a certain certain reality to the scene, which, which turned out to be, you know, quite beautiful. It's not always easy to see how the scene will play out. There's no guarantee that the shot will be beautiful or that a big government initiative will succeed, especially in times of crisis. But when the stakes are high, perhaps in some ways, the most important thing is the commitment to act. Here's Lewis Hyman again. This is the genius of FDR, that he was not a genius, that he was committed to experimentation. And I think that that is part of the story. And these people were also very committed to saving the country. The, the, the country was in a crisis. I hope that Biden is a similar kind of charismatic leader who's looking for experiments. BCG's Emily Sarazen. For every great success, there are a lot of failures. And you do absolutely have to be prepared for that. You know, if the Biden administration wants to come in and say, we're going to do things differently, we're going to try new things, we're going to experiment, what's important is that we're going to fail fast. This isn't going to be perfect. We're going to try things that don't work. In a crisis, leaders crave stability. They want the sure thing, the safe bet, the quick fix. But in uncharted territory, there's simply no such thing. In those moments, good leadership arguably means having the courage to test the untested and to imagine that things could work out for the best. In that moment, did it feel like it was destined to be this great success? No, I mean, I don't think I don't think that that when George made the first Star Wars, he I don't think he was never thought it would be anywhere near successful as it was. Every time you create something, you're you're creating something that nobody's ever seen before. You know, it's never been done. You've never seen it. You don't know what it looks like. So you're everything is being from scratch. I don't know. I'm an optimist. You know, I mean, you know, people who know me, you know, think I'm crazy. It could be raining and pouring, but the sun will come out tomorrow. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join me next week as we go from examining how leaders act when it comes to crises 
to how fast they act when they have a small window of opportunity to enact a big agenda.